Runner terminated at 016. Ready for cleanup to people quadrant 39. I belong to a new underclass, no longer determined by social status or the color of your skin. No, we now have discrimination down to a science. That is your receipt for your husband, and this is my receipt for your receipt. I'm going to show you a world without sin. Live from VCon 36, it's Caustic Soda. Bam! Uh, so this is episode 81, we're going to say. Uh, this is the podcast where uh, Nerd Happens, where we talk about uh, science and history and pop culture. And today our topic is dystopia. So we're very uh, pleased to have our guests here to talk about some of the uh, franchises they may have been involved in. Uh, so first off, uh, the word origin for utopia literally means nowhere, coined by Thomas More uh, and used for the title of his book from 1516, uh, from Greek, you uh, meaning not, and topos meaning place. That doesn't make any sense. Why would a utopia be no place? So it's so perfect that it doesn't exist? Is Probably. that what he means? Yeah, that could be. Uh, yes. Okay. And so dystopia is obviously, Greek dis means bad or abnormal, so it's kind of the flip side of the utopia. And that's the origin of the term, somebody got dissed. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no. I think it's from disrespect. No, disrespect, from yes. Oh, from ancient I, Greek. I just got dissed by Larry Niven. That's what I got. <laughs> And the phobia of imperfection is atilophobia. Atilophobia. Say it with me, audience. Atilophobia. Is it spelled like Attila the Hun? No, it's A-T-E-L. A-T-E-L, okay. All right, okay. So uh, the description, the dystopian societies feature different kinds of repressive social control systems, often imagined as police states with unlimited power over the citizens, usually includes the concept of humans abusing technology and not being able to properly cope with, uh, with technology. Do you agree with that, Joe? Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. You could also say that like post-apocalyptic futures also fall into the dystopia category, but we're not really going to be talking about that. We're going to talk mostly about like utopias that are not, clearly not what they... They've gone wrong. Yeah, they've gone wrong. Yeah, it's like girls gone wild, only not <laughs> as nearly as many boobs. Society's gone wrong. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. More clones. Somehow I don't think that's uh, going to be as popular a video series. It could be a Fox TV series when societies attack. Do you think you can oh, do nice. a political affair with not too many boobs? Uh, <laughs> be different, <laughs> different kind of boobs, though. Yeah. They'd be the politicians You're ready in charge. to run for office. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like the cut of your jib, Mr. Niven. <laughs> So uh, one of the uh, dystopias that we've just uh, we decided to talk about, clearly there are many, many dystopias, many movies, many books. We've kind of limited our scope to what, what movies we'll be talking about and which ones, you know, we don't have time clearly to talk about everything. Uh, but we definitely want to talk about Firefly, since we have Lisa here, oh. and she's worked on the Firefly front, and Serenity as well, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, excellent. Uh, movies that we all enjoy, I'm sure I... 
speak for everyone here. I'm a well. Don't make me go get my brown coat. It's right over there. Oh, that's <laughs> right. You're a member of uh, of the. There's a well, not a member now. Oh, isn't there like an organization of uh, of nerds that get together and I think so. And they're called the brown coats. Yes, but you're not. You I'm don't a have a self-described brown coat. Okay. You're not card carrying. My, my leather jacket is brownish, and I have a serenity patch over top of where the motorcycle patch used to be. Oh, and oh, I that's am only totally a fan <laughs> of Firefly. Oh really? Oh yeah. Oh wow. Absolutely. Nice. I love this it. This is the best. Uh, has has anybody here not seen Firefly? It's kind of ridiculous to introduce this, this show here. I think everyone's seen. Yeah. Firefly. But for the benefit of those poor people who might not have seen it, listening to the podcast later on, uh, Firefly is a science fiction television show with a western vibe about the crew of a Firefly class transport spaceship uh, named Serenity. Uh, they work whatever jobs of questionable legality they can find in a system of several planets ruled by the Union of Allied Planets, which is also shortened to the Alliance. Uh, years before that, a group of the border worlds uh, called themselves independents and tried to fight for freedom from the Alliance. They failed. Uh, a member of the military, Malcolm Reynolds, is now the captain of Serenity. and Played he, by Nathan Fillion. Played by a good Canadian kid, Nathan Fillion. Yep, very capable. Great guy. <laughs> And they now live around the edges of this alliance society where there's very little freedom there, and they try to eke out their freedom and their life uh, running whatever jobs they can outside that oppressive society. Right, and they choose to live kind of hand-to-mouth rather than join yeah. the, the system. Yeah, the utopia yeah. or dystopia of the alliance. Right, right. I'm the, sure the alliance would think of themselves as a utopia. Exactly, <laughs> right. which is, that's exactly what we want to cover here, is where people might think they're in a utopia. This is great, but others are pointing out the flaws in that system, and I think the alliance is a really great example of that. So just play the devil's advocate here, Lisa. What makes uh, the crew of Firefly like not the Somali pirates of the... Uh, you of know, the Alliance world. They are outlaws, like in the Western sense. So they kind of are like the Somali pirates. Right. Although they do have a, their own ethical code. So, you know, they try to, uh, to do good in their small way. But they really are just trying to live, just trying to survive. All right. Yeah, there's a great line in one of the episodes. It's uh, something about if, if, all was, if all was right in the world, we'd be in prison mm-hmm. because we're criminals. <laughs> Uh, I've got a great line from the episode, or a set of lines from the episode, Ariel, uh, that gives an example of what the crew of the Firefly of Serenity thinks about uh, the Alliance worlds. It's uh, Wash and his wife, Zoe. Uh, and Wash is trying to say, you know, let, we're getting off this planet, let's go have some fun on it. Uh, and he's trying to convince her to do that. And he says, we can just go to the park or something, feed the pigeons. Uh, she replies, sure, feed the pigeons, probably get the firing squad for littering. Come on, it's not that bad, Zoe replies. It is. It's a core planet. It's spotless, and it's got sensors, and where there ain't sensors, there's feds. All central planets are the same. Now, of course, she might be a little bitter about this, being on the losing (laughs) side of a fight for independence. Uh, But what she's pointing out is that there are probably sensors almost everywhere watching what you're doing. There are very restrictive laws over the freedom that you can do, even if it's something she thinks as innocent as feeding the pigeons might be then seen by them as littering. Uh, and we see a lot more examples of that throughout the entire series. Ariel being an excellent uh, episode to see a lot of that because they're actually on a core planet. Well, that points to something that you would think would be common among dystopias uh, in that, uh, not to use the word fascist, but mm-hmm. it sort of shows you where p- power can go wrong. And yes, right. if you live on a core planet, you get all the benefits of you have technology and you know you get all the cool te- you know, new medicine and things like that. Whereas right. if you live on the fringes, 
you you have crappy ships <laughs> and you ride horses. Well, <laughs> exactly. Because we're, fringe at a, planets, yeah. because we're at a sci-fi convention, I mean, I think we'll probably be skewing heavily towards like sort of these futuristic societies. And so like technology would be like a major important part of it. But I mean, that's not necessarily uh, the driving force, right? I mean, you can, you know, uh, have a dystopia without necessarily being uh, technologically disadvantaged, right? I mean, in our lead up, that's sort right. of like what, what we called about being one of the major components. But. Right. But I think... What it is is the people living in that dystopia aren't fighting against it because they think what they get out of it, and in the, the Firefly universe it would be the, the medicine right. and the technology and stuff like that. But there's a, is a worth, trade-off. Yeah. Is worth the loss of freedom. And then we've got some other examples that we'll get to where the people living in it, they're not fighting against it for whatever reason. And they think it's because either this is the way it is or, well, it's worth it to give up this freedom uh, in order to have these benefits, whatever they are and however limited they might be. Or in some cases they just don't know better. So Exactly. So, Larry, what's your favorite part about Firefly? What made you a fan? Uh, I guess I, I have to confess, I like the spaceship. <laughs> yeah. uh, Serenity. But, but it, it was well written. It's a good basic premise. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of habitable planets around one sun, so you don't need faster than light travel. Oh, that's a good point. Something I had never occurred to me. I've watched every single episode and the movie. They didn't really talk about it till the movie. Yeah. And in the movie, they said it was one system, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think science is Joss's uh, exact strength. He just was like, I want a place to tell stories. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he needs to hire somebody like Larry who can create amazing worlds to have all this kind of stuff on. Yeah. and give That it has it. happened. Yeah. Uh, you, remember, um, uh, you remember V? Mm-hmm. V? Of course. Yeah. Uh, when V was absolutely doomed, uh, definitely going to go off the air, th- that's when they started to fix it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they fixed it by calling in me and Jerry Pornell for a, for oh, a conference. Nice. I love that series. That was one of my favorite things. And as a, as, as a, as a kid, I, uh, I was a huge fan of that initial miniseries that led into the ongoing series. Mm-hmm. And you had, you had nothing to do with the original miniseries. You were brought no, in to... No, we were brought in when it was, when it was over. Oh. <laughs> they, they, they were ringing the death knell. The, the, yeah, yeah. The bell was and rung. And then somebody decided it could be saved. And in, uh, and in Serenity, they went to that planet where everyone had... Miranda. Been. Oh, Miranda. Yeah, Miranda, exactly. Oh, Thank sorry. you. Uh, where everyone had, had uh, been basically experimented on. Yeah, that's like taking what's symbolic about a, having a powerful control over society and making it literal, where they're literally now trying to control their subjects so, exactly. <laughs> or the citizens of the society with this drug pact. So, Larry, uh, you have written a book called uh, Oath of Fealty, one of many. Yeah, me and Jerry Purnell wrote that. Set in Los Angeles, but in an arcology set in Los Angeles. Right. What is an arcology? An arcology is, is a city in a building. Uh, Oath of Fealty in particular is two miles by two miles by a fifth of a mile high uh, and r- roughly squarish with uh, air, air wells uh, leading down to, the, down to the ground. So uh, just out of curiosity, as, uh, how did you come up with that idea? Like where, what was the, the germ of the concept for, for Oath of Fealty? Jerry had been wanting to write this one for a long time. He had a, a picture in his head of a ghetto fire that got, gets completely out of hand and, and winds up burning down a lot of Los Angeles so that the land becomes cheap. Oh, okay. <laughs> move, move in and set up this huge city in a building what a novel with, concept. with farms all around it. What a novel concept. L.A.'s never been on fire before or since. <laughs> yeah, we, 
we notice these things. <laughs> uh, we being Angelinos now. Yeah. And, and this is a culture that, again, sacrifices privacy in exchange for security, which is... Exactly. You give up a certain freedom, get a certain amount of safety. Right. Uh, Othafieldi tells of, uh, of Todos Santos, the arcology, and, uh, and its conflicts with Los Angeles, which is going into chaos. The dystopia is outside, uh, is outside Todos Santos, unless you don't like giving up your freedom. And it's also run by Millie, an advanced computer system? Uh, Millie is an element of the story, yeah. Right. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of what Jerry thought would happen to computers, and Jerry was generally right. A futurist uh, sort of thing, right? Jer- Jerry Purnell, by the way, uh, the voice of Byte magazine, uh, he, wrote under, he wrote under the uh, title Chaos Manor. And he, he invented the concept of the, of the user's column, the uh, computer user's column. All right. Created a, uh, a lifestyle out of nothing. Yeah, there was a, there's a great line about computers that uh, I'm guessing it was written by him. It was, uh, I'm going to paraphrase, uh, that's the thing about people who don't like computers. They don't really dislike computers. They dislike bad programmers. Yeah. And that was 1982 that nice. he figured this out. That sounds Pornell-like, although yeah. I don't recognize and the quote. that is so much the truth, especially these days. I mean, mm-hmm. computers are amazing, but when you're mad at them, it's because they've been programmed badly. You, you know what happens when you have too many bad programmers? Dystopia. And why is it called Oath of Fealty? Because you've given your, your loyalty to the city, right. to the city of Todos Santos. Uh, you, you follow certain rules, and they are pretty strict. Yeah. Uh, you, you eat, for instance, in the common areas twice a week. Uh, you get to know your neighbors. You don't have a choice. Mm. Oh, Interesting. And uh, the main thrust of the, of the novel is the conflict between the members of this arcology and the people in the, the kind of the ruins of Los Angeles uh, because they want to keep those people out. Yeah. And uh, the, the thing that sets off the drama is a bunch of kids are sneaking around in the tunnels trying to get into the arcology. And there's all sorts of signs saying, you know, warning, radiation uh, and whatever. lethal countermeasures, don't come in here. And the kids ignore them. They go in. They have what appears to be weapons, but they're actually not. And fake then, dynamite. Yeah, fake dynamite. And uh, then the countermeasures end up killing the kids. And the Angelinos, of course, rightfully so, freak out and start getting mad at the arcology, the people who are in the arcology who are completely fine with this, give up your freedom and privacy for all these good things, are saying, well, look, you know, they were warned. This is evolution in action. This was the source of that, of that phrase, as far as I know. Uh, uh, these kids mine. were too dumb. Was it? There you go. Mine, yes. These kids were totally warned. They made their own choice, and this is the outcome of that. And Los Angeles didn't respond well to that uh, that viewpoint. Larry, have you ever thought about suing the Darwin Awards? Because it seems like you might have come up with the idea before anybody else thought of it. No, I toss, I, I toss phrases out there, and if they, they spread, they spread. Flash crowd is mine. Oh, oh nice. Really? Yeah. Well, you Fantastic. Flash crowd. I like it. You, but yeah, but you, you, you actually meant what it became, not just people flashing, right? <laughs> Has there ever been a crowd flash crowd of flashers? Was, was set in a teleportation universe. Oh, okay. Where you could, you really could gather all in a flash. So suddenly, you've got a a, a riot where there was nobody around a moment ago. Oh, 
Okay. That's crazy. Do we want to give away the ending of Oath of Fealty? Um, no, I think you I'll, should I'll give it. away this much. The second crowd that tries to sneak into Oath of Fealty has real explosives. Ah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. And you find out why the kids had fake explosives. Yeah. And even though it's a book, I imagine I would hear my head dun, dun, dun. And my favorite character was Rand, the guy who, who built Toto Santos. And he, he, he's... He's convinced he's building the prototype for a starship. Oh, oh, and the, and so he didn't even know he was building Toto Santos. He he knew he was building something self-contained, and he wanted it very self-contained. So he figured it was going to space, and it's yeah, have strap to do some with engines it. on it and take off. Yeah, sooner or later he's going to put one in orbit. Well, let's move on to some movies, shall we? A little pop All right. culture. All right. Pop goes the culture. There's a few movies we're going to talk about, and the one I would like to talk about first is Logan's Run. Who's seen Logan's Run? Uh, yeah, sci-fi convention. Everyone's yeah, seen like, Logan's Run. <laughs> probably can't swing a dead cat without seeing a Logan's Run viewer. From the 1967 novel, the film was 1979. I've seen it myself many times. How is it dystopic? A future society in which population and the consumption of resources are managed and maintained in equilibrium by killing everyone who reaches the age of 30, preventing overpopulation. Every resident must undergo the ritual of carousel at the age of 30 where they are vaporized but the, with the promise of being renewed. To track this, the humans are implanted at birth with a life clock crystal in the palm of their hand that changes colors as they approach their last day. So to maintain order, the computer has assigned... Again, this is another one of those computer-controlled societies. Uh, yeah, why, uh, why is it that computers play such a big factor into dystopias? Like, I guess you've got to have that kind of like mindless entity that sort of, you know, then you can't blame it on an individual or... Well, I think they represent technology gone amok. Yeah, right. Okay. People yeah. losing control future of their tools. Com- future computers are scary. Yeah. Or, <laughs> Always or have been. It's like the worst part of ourselves. Like if we just followed rules or something, we would be... Like automatons. <laughs> Where's the love? Where's the passion? Right, it's not just about logic and computational systems and so forth. Bits <laughs> and bytes. I love that show. And hexadecimals. Uh, so uh, the main character is a Sandman who's basically a policeman who's cha- whose job it is to chase after and terminate runners, which is those who try to leave the city. Uh, and uh, Logan Five is played by Michael York, one of my. What, he's one of those actors that in the seventies he was in like all the cool science fiction. Yeah, he was in everything. Yeah, the what that were on the movies that were on at like three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, like Island of Doctor Moreau. And so hey, forth. Larry, when you were writing a book, did you ever imagine the movie? Did sure. You ever, did you ever think the movie in the back of your head, and you ever have anybody in mind, like said, "Oh, it'd be awesome if this guy played this part in this book." Did that ever occur to you? Yes, but against my will. <laughs> um, when I'm writing a book, I want it to, to be a perfect book. I've got no intention of letting mov- movie right. uh, anticipations ruin it. You write right. the book for the book itself. You yeah. betcha. Great. Cool. Uh, so Logan is assigned by the computer a secret mission to locate and destroy Sanctuary, which is a legendary hideout for runners. Uh, the computer accelerates his life clock as part of the mission, and then suddenly he feels that he doesn't really want to be a part of this society anymore. He doesn't want to die. He's not sure about this whole regeneration process. A little existential angst. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he decides to run, and he becomes the runner. Run, runner. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's their taunt. Run, runner. Run, runner. Yep. Yep, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I, that's not an insult. Okay, Here I go. I won't stop You're then. You're shooting at me. I'm going to run, and I don't feel bad about it. That's one of the cool things I liked about the movie was the gun. 
Yeah. It had a really cool, it had those, yeah, those one, little flashes off the side of the... Six bullets, no two alike. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Nice. The book was that way. The book had that, too. So he uh, hooks up with uh, one of these um, uh, runners as well. She is in a, she is basically, she apparently knows about Sanctuary. Uh, so she hooks up with her, and they go uh, running, and they eventually get to the outside world, and there's Peter Ustinov as the old man, and they're like, what the H? An old man? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's over 30, man. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he had lines on his face, if I recall. Yes, yeah. exactly. The girl kept touching and the lines he, on his face. And uh, he loved cats. He had a lot of cats. That's right. Uh, remember the cats? It was a cat utopia. It was a catopia. <laughs> And uh, it was quite different from the book. Uh, in the movie, um, uh, in the in the movie, there is no sanctuary. It's just a, a legend. Uh, but in the book, it's an abandoned space colony near Mars. So there's some rockets involved. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. And are there people living there? I haven't read the book. Uh, neither have I. But have you uh, read it's the book? worthwhile. Yeah, it's oh. fun. Right. It it's it won't. Improve your education, <laughs> but, but it's fast moving and lots of fun. Uh, and in 1977, there was a short-lived TV series made that I haven't seen. And DC Fontana, who we all know from Star Trek, uh, served as story editor and employed several other writers from Star Trek. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on Logan's Run? That's a hard uh, one uh, for me. I give it a uh, I give it a thumbs up for sure. Yeah, I'll abstain. Uh, fair enough. I would totally give it I a like thumbs the, up. I, yeah. I, re- I recommend the book, however. Oh. Uh, sure. Yeah, of course. Sure. Yeah, the, the movie feels a little dated for me. It's been a while since I've well, watched, I watched it. Well, I watched it last week, and it was very entertaining. Yeah? Here's the thing. I don't think I've seen Logan's Run since I was 11, so that's why I probably have such fond memory of me it. Me too. Yeah. And, and it terrified me when I first saw it on TV, so I have like this trauma associated with it, and so yeah, oldest- I will always kind of love it because it's like, oh, Logan's Run. Terrified. The oldest memory I have from from Logan's Run was the was the robot. Yeah. Towards the end, who had other people had come looking for sanctuary, and his job was to freeze food, algae and proteins from the sea. But he ran out of algae and proteins from the sea. Oh, that's right. So anytime people runners came out looking for sanctuary, he would freeze them. So there was this protein. whole yeah. <laughs> there was this whole sequence of uh, of Logan and Jessica something other six I'll say uh-huh. uh, running from this uh, crazy robot who's clearly a man in a Dalek esque type costume <laughs> with, <laughs> with uh, these uh, hoses for arms and when, when you're talking about stuff. story Box, values, yes, you're name. not supposed to question the special effects, <laughs> no, especially from older shows. Well, one of my all-time favorite dystopia movies is uh, Remember, Remember the Fifth of November. The Gunpowder Treason and Plot, V for Vendetta, one of my all-time favorites. I think the Wachowski brothers redeemed themselves after a couple of Abomination Matrix movies uh, by producing uh, uh, one of the most uh, outstanding, entertaining, dystopian films of all time. Uh, Hugo Weaving as uh, V, the Guy Fawkes masked terrorist and, mm-hmm. and anarchist. And what's the dystopia? Well, it, that you know, you live in this this society that everyone is safe, right? There's no crime, there's no uh, anything, but there's a there's a, a dictator who makes no bones about being a dictator, and you know they've got uh, they've got they've got fingermen they call them that go from door to door and take down any dissidents, and people just disappear. Fingermen. Yeah, well, I guess the theory behind it is is, that, and I actually didn't realize this until I started doing the research for this this podcast, but that. Uh, in Alan Moore's mind, he uh, he built the society or the the construct of government 
like a body and the dictator was the head and the uh, the police force were the arms oh. and then the secret police were the hands so the individual guys were the fingers interesting so and then that's and so the uh um and there's the whole rest of society is patterned after parts of the body so I and did we mention this was funny. based on a comic uh, yeah, uh, I don't think I did, but the interesting part about uh, the V for Vendetta comic was that it was printed first in Warrior magazine as a serial. Oh, yeah, I subscribed to that. Uh, in 1984, but uh, Warrior magazine went out of business uh, before they had a chance to actually finish the series run, and it wasn't until 1988, three years later, that DC Comics uh, bought the property and uh, reprinted it in color when it was originally in black and white, ah. and uh, and then they finished the story. They got the final two chapters in the collection. So uh, that was a uh, imagine being a big fan, reading it all along, and then having the magazine go out of business two chapters <laughs> before the end. I would have happened if it hadn't gone out of business. I would have burned that building down. <laughs> I'm enraged. So they burned Parliament down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, so basically, V shows up and he blows up the old Bailey, uh, the the House of Justice, and uh, and then he says one year later he's going to blow up Parliament. Now I guess one of the big problems Alan Moore, uh, I mean Alan Moore, quite famously has problems with all the movie adaptations of his books. Yes. Uh, after a couple. Decidedly of, so. Decidedly so. But I guess after a couple of uh, particularly negative experiences in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and from Hell, and so has just taken a, a policy of disagreeing with all of his <laughs> film adaptations from this point forward. But uh, I, one of the big re- things that I heard he had a problem with was that. In the comic, V is just an anarchist. Like he wants to bring government down and doesn't have a plan for replacing it. Whereas in the movie, he's much more of a Democrat. He's just like mm. we, the people, need to have their voice heard, and they need representation. We need to take down the dictators, and so that's uh, from what I've what I've read seems to be one of the big stumbling blocks he has over yeah. the adaptation. But I mean, it's just so cleverly acted. I mean, Natalie Portman and Hugo Weaving are just amazing, and their shaved heads. Yeah, yeah, and Natalie Portman gets her head shaved uh, in the process of being interrogated and all the rest of that stuff. Interesting trivial fact mm-hmm. here that I didn't even know before I, uh, again, started researching this whole thing. An actor by the name of James Purefoy was originally cast in the role of V, even to the point where he actually was on set acting in the part, mm-hmm. and he was replaced by Hugo Weaving about a third of the way through filming, so... Like a third of the scenes is actually James Purefoy behind the mask, and like wow. two thirds of the scenes, it's Hugo Weaving. Behind oh, I the can mask. totally tell by the way he walks. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and handy, why was handy he... to have a mask. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding. Make a decision like that. Yeah, I, well, it's kind of like they should have done that with two and a half men. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't know how we weave Charlie Sheen into dystopia, but he's a human dystopia, <laughs> I think. I'm just really As upset now that the actual excellent author has been funnier than all of us combined. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why. That's why we need we need we need help, Joe. That's we need we props. Need that's what we need. Are you guys comic fans, Larry, Lisa? Comic and fans, definitely. And Alan Moore in in particular. And I, I'm on his side when he has trouble with the way these movies are made. Not not because you know they're different mediums, obviously, mm-hmm. but. Um, what you pointed to in V for Vendetta, obviously his idea for it was a lot darker, and I think a lot of his material is darker. Yeah. Uh, like the Watchmen, certainly. Those heroes were not heroes yeah. uh, by yeah. any means. I almost feel like somebody who's living in a dystopia now because I'm like, well, you're right that they're darker, but it's okay because I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give up the freedom to have exactly the 
to have thing a faithful, he wrote. To have an actual faithful retelling yeah. of his actual story because it's so masterfully done. I sort yeah. of fall on the Although, same side, Joe. If it's good, we, unlike Excellence has its version. own justification. We've been re-educated I'm, by Hollywood. I'm, Hollywood has taught me anything. Now I'm questioning myself. Now Hollywood. I'm questioning my love of that movie. <laughs> Gattaca. Uh, it was released in 1997, stars Ethan Hawke as... Uh, for some reason, a perfect male representing an imperfect male in a movie. <laughs> Thank you, Hollywood. Uh, Uma Thurman and Jude Law. Uh, the basic uh, premise is a genetically flawed man, which is Ethan Hawke, impersonates a genetically superior man, Jude Law, in order to achieve his dream of space travel. Uh, Ethan Hawke's character wants to go into space, but he has a heart defect that's probably going to end his life by, the they say, the age of 30, yet he's over 30 now in the movie. How ironic is it that this plot is that the best thing you can be is an astronaut and the U.S. just canceled their space program? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Pretty sad. A great line from the movie uh, that talks about the dystopia is, we now have discrimination down to a science. That was the one that really drove it home oh, for me. Nice. Because they, what they do is they have uh, genetic scanners that seem to be very easy and very quick to do. You, they can, you can get a swab off anybody and then figure out who they are. You just put it in, instantly see the, the information and any flaws that they've got. If you want to be in a great job, you're basically going to have to be genetically perfect. Uh, they will use any kind of genetic flaw to well, and they, and disallow they also, you. Parents also do like the genetic uh, Right, you fixing. can also you can also have custom made yeah. babies, yeah. yeah. Ethan Hawke's character was, uh, now I can't remember what the term was that they used for it, but a, a natural, natural birth. birth yeah. His parents basically just had sex. He was valids baby. and invalids. That's right, he was an, invul- he was an invalid. Um, and a lot more fun, a lot less effective. When he was born, his parents got him tested and they found out the heart defect. His parents were destroyed, his father especially. So their second child, his brother, was actually genetic created to be still their child but perfect he has no flaws whatsoever so this is one of those movies where there's a huge disparity in classes right basically yeah his the the best job that he's got to get himself close to being in space is to be the janitor at the space agency he gets this guy basically assumes his identity uh, he has to wear contact lenses, so his eyes are the same. He's wearing fake fingertips because everybody in this society is completely paranoid for some reason and constantly checking and rechecking people to see if they're faking their genetic right. makeup. I just remember the constant scrubbing, the scrubbing, the scrubbing. That's, that's, right. what I, that's what I took away from that movie is that I'm not clean enough. He was constantly scrubbing because he didn't want to give off any of his DNA that they could then sweep up later and test right. him. So he was actually v- using a little mini vacuum on his keyboard yeah. so they couldn't pick it up. Yeah, and they, they had comments, you're the, you keep the cleanest workspace of anybody. And he said, it's close to godliness. <laughs> so Larry, and then they just have you guys it. seen Gattaca? Uh, yeah. Big fan? Yes, or, uh, big fan, sure. Nice. Yeah. Good yeah. movie. And um, the guy who wrote that, uh, Andrew Nicole, yeah. his newest movie, just to bring it back to Logan's Run, is about yeah. a dystopia, perhaps, where yeah. um, time is money. And it's like Logan's Run in that you everybody has oh, some sort of yeah. amount of time to live. Yeah, that's and, the Justin Timberlake one, Yeah, right? yeah. So I think Andrew Nicole always has these great, really interesting, you know, idea-driven movies like Attica. Truman, Truman Show yeah. was his. Uh, Simone, uh, The Terminal, Lord of War being the one that uh, was kind of di- a, a departure for him. But yeah, In Time is coming out apparently this year. I don't know when it... Let's yeah, see. very soon. I've mean, seen lots of trailers of it. That's for sure. Seems like it owes a lot uh, to Logan's run. I'm just saying. <laughs> it really does, yeah. October 28th, for anybody yeah. who's interested in seeing In Time. 
So yeah, I love Gattaca. It's beautifully shot. It's one of those science fiction movies that you don't see much these days where they just let the pace handle itself. It doesn't have a lot of action. They let the story tell itself. Even though it's futuristic and beautiful, they allow the story to come through, which is I really, remember really watching great. it and knowing that it was the first time I'd ever seen Jude Law and thinking to myself, who the heck is this guy? Yeah, that made him a star, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, no, like really take, sitting up and take notice, like watching a performer really kind of make something of a, of a, of a performance because that bit where he's, he's upstairs in his wheelchair and he's trying to get downstairs to like uh, meet the investigator yeah. and he's struggling down the stairs with his useless legs and the whole nine yards. It was fantastic. Like just riveting. Like you just, yeah. And how is it, how much as an actor does that mess with your personal view of yourself? Yeah. Like you've been hired to play the epitome of the perfect genetic specimen. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I get this part in this movie. What are you playing? Perfect man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might it might skew your self worth a little bit, huh? Yeah, a yeah just a little. Ego. Ah, he's British. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're a class society anyway. I'm sure he had an inflated ego to begin with. So thumbs up. Yeah, big thumbs up. Uh, I'm not entirely sold on their premise that uh, genetics doesn't matter at all. I mean, probably does have something to do with it, but it's not all there is. There's certainly drive and con. Yeah. <laughs> Khan could still become the stoner sleeping on your couch, no matter how <laughs> no matter how good his genetics are, he could still love weed, you know, like <laughs> he tasks me, oh whatever <laughs> I'll smoke another bowl let's go to nineteen eighty four and the movie nineteen eighty four okay, I still haven't seen it whoa, I know it there have been several well, the yeah. one that was actually done in nineteen eighty four is the one I think we're talking yeah, about. yeah, that's the one that uh, I watched this week. This is the one that whenever we talk about it, people go, you know, the one that Annie Lennox did the soundtrack for. That's, the, that's how it's always brought up. <laughs> really? 1984, you know, the one that Annie Lennox did the oh, soundtrack okay. for. Oh, that one. Uh, Interesting s- trivia. 1984, written in 1948. Yes. Yeah. So if it had been written in 1949, it would have been 1994. Could be. Maybe. Wow. Lazy. <laughs> So, of course, based on George Orwell's book published in 1949, stars John Hurt, which I remember seeing the movie when I was probably in high school, mm-hmm. and I didn't know who John Hurt was. And then it seems to me that he wasn't in anything until the last 10 years, at which he's been in like everything. Well, he's the dictator in V for Vendetta as well. Ah, he gets around. Yeah. So this is a younger John Hurt and Richard Burton in his uh, final film role. Now, most of us know about uh, the uh, setting for 1984, but it's a world of perpetual war, pervasive government surveillance, and incessant public mind control accomplished with a political system euphemistically named English Socialism, or INGSOC. Big Brother is the deified party leader who rules with a philosophy that decries independent thought as thought crime. So the protagonist in the story, Winston Smith, works for the Ministry of Truth, which is responsible for propaganda and historical revisionism. Uh, his job is to basically rewrite past newspaper articles so that the historical record is congruent with the party doctrine. And uh, so he starts uh, keeping a secret diary of his private thoughts, and he uh, hooks up with uh, one of the sisters, uh, not sister-sister, but, you know, brothers and sisters kind of thing. They both get caught, and uh, there's a rather intense reprogramming scene. That's the last probably 20 minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. that I didn't remember at all. But it is amazing. 
this is not the kind of torturing. This is not like Mel Gibson, the Hollywood torturing where he's stoic and, and he never breaks and that kind of thing. Like he is broken. Like there's, they specifically say, you know, we're early in the movie, you know, we're going to get caught and they, they can, you know, they can take away our freedoms that never take away our love for each other. And then by the end of the movie, he's like, no, don't do it to me. Do it to her. Yeah. Flip flop. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, you know, this is the kind of torture where they start out with physical torture and they climax with uh, completely psychological torture. They have a, a rat cage that, yeah. that's basically a rat cage helmet that they put on him. And I saw that in Fear Factor. There's a, is that right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's a sequence of doors and the rats are, start off farther away from his face and then they. Then they take out the uh, the doors, and the rats get closer to his face, and they know exactly what his phobia is, and that's it. And then you know, this is all part of the backstory with his yeah. parents and everything, and rats. So, so uh, intense, very intense. We all want to think that we can be heroic and stand up to torture, but we just have no idea. I remember uh, when Christopher Hitchens got waterboarded; like he lasted only a few seconds, and he said, "I would have said anything to right. make them stop. Yeah. I would have admitted to anything. It was that bad." I mean, is there is there anything in science fiction probably with longer lasting and deeper influence than 1984? Like, I, I feel like when I think of dystopias, this is the, the iconic yeah. dystopia. Yeah. Everything about it. Yeah. I mean, even just the term "Big Brother." I mean, you just say, "Hey, Big Brother's watching," and everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. Big Brother and thought crimes. I yeah. feel thought like crimes, it's like yeah. in common parlance now. Yeah, I mean, no one. Uh, there are probably people who have never seen the movie and never read the book who will still know exactly what you're talking yeah. about, right? right? So talking about the cameras on on red on traffic lights. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Larry, would you count it as an influence of yours or uh, or no, you eschew it. You you you're beyond it. 1984 um, is uh, I I do not really know how 1984 is influenced my writing, but I know it's living in my head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's all part of the rich tapestry. And it's if you, if you uh want to read the book, I feel like that book is an absolute classic and, you know, the yeah. book I've read, yeah. 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 Feels like the older, uh, much darker cousin of Catch-22, right? You know, where you've got, you've got yeah. the, the characters just get in the, caught in this, in this endless Mobius loop that they can't get themselves out of, right? right. They know that inevitably it's going to end badly for them, but there's nothing you can do to stop it. Yeah, you describe it that way. I almost reverse it in that Catch-22 is the lighter side of 1984. <laughs> yeah. Somebody read 1984 and said, ah, it's great that it's weird and depressing, but couldn't it also be kind of funny? <laughs> Yeah. So Brazil also uh, released in 1985, directed Ooh, by good Terry Gilliam. Good year for dystopias. Yeah. This is like the Napa Valley, you know, when you get that kind <laughs> of, uh, everybody, oh, everything that came out of the Napa, all the wines that came out that in 1979 right. are of top shelf quality. I think it was people being influenced by the fact that it was pretty much 1984. Right. Right. So these, these films would have been filmed a year or two before. Yeah. So it would it's have been during 1984 and it would have been on, on yeah. everybody's head. Uh, so Brazil stars Jonathan Price as Sam Lowry, who's a man trying to find a woman who appears in his dreams uh, while he is working in a mind-numbing job and living a life in a small apartment set in a world in which there is an over-reliance on poorly maintained machines. Uh, the world is bogged down in bureaucracy and what seems to be mindless busy work. Repair work can't get done uh, by the government without proper form authorization. Uh, independent contractors are outlawed and hunted down. Michael Palin stars as a friend of Sam's who works in information retrieval, which is just a euphemistic title for their society's interrogation office. And Robert De Niro is amazing as a heroic renegade heating repairman. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I've got, the, I've got a quote from, uh, this is from uh, Stason.org. 
Brazil is a film which rolls up many of the problems of the century into one big plot. Industrialization, terrorism, government control and bureaucracy from both capitalist and socialized countries, technology gone wrong, inept repair people, plastic surgery, love, and even modern filmmaking, but especially love. After watching it and after having, I've seen quite a bit on Terry Gilliam and I've watched a lot of his films and I've seen a lot of his interviews. To me, that quote uh, and knowing about Terry Gilliam makes me think this movie is basically Terry Gilliam talking about everything that drives him crazy mm. about our current society, but he's turned it up to 11 to really drive the point home. Oh, yeah. Like, this is his opus, right? Like, this is yeah. kind of like the blueprint for pretty much every movie he's ever made since, too, right? Yeah. You know, they all kind of like just like uh, almost take pieces out of it because it's such a, you know, uh, the, it's his Bible that he can draw from right. and like create other spin off stories. Yeah, the dystopia is so perfect and so bizarre, but nobody living in it can see it that way until Sam gets, you know, his whole life gets turned upside down, and then he starts to recognize what a mess the world he lives in is. But all the people living there just think everything's normal and everything's fine, and they don't question it one bit. I've heard it described as uh, 1984, except it has a buffoonish slapstick quality and lacks a big brother figure. I would disagree. With I, yeah, I, I take exception. I don't think it's got slapstick. I, it doesn't have a big brother. That's true. No, I'll go for the buffoonish character, though. Yeah, he is buffoonish. Nobody you slips on a banana peel, movie, though. though. Yeah, no. Yeah, there's no slipping on a banana peel. There's no. There's nothing done just for laughs. When a he genetically does, perfect banana peel. <laughs> that would be in Gattaca. Yeah. Um, when he does all this stuff, it's done to show just how weird and frenetic and useless these repairmen are, and. I think that the that the comedy in that is supposed to be almost a sad comedy, that it's supposed to be comedy. If you will. He, look, he's not even competent. He's doing it like a goofball or a satire. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the funniest part is is like the little things that, that are in the environment that they never even talk about, like the fact that in his in his busy work in his job he doesn't have. Uh, uh, just a normal size screen. He has an incredibly tiny screen <laughs> with a giant magnifying glass in front right. of it, right? And it's never referred to. It's never brought up. It's never discussed. But it's the most ridiculous way to actually work. Or the room he ha- where he has to share a desk with somebody in another room, and so they're like pulling the desk yeah. on either There's side. There's a hole in the wall between their rooms, and they're pulling this long desk back and half. forth. Yeah. yeah, just all sorts of ridiculousness. Uh, there are propaganda posters everywhere in the background in Brazil. I've got a few really good ones that I've noted down here. Uh, on a statue uh, outside or in the Department of Records, the truth shall make you free. I love the word make you free. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> set, set you free. free. Yeah. It makes. makes you free. Be safe. Be suspicious. Uh, nice. Loose talk is noose talk. <laughs> oh, nice. Outside of, or in Kurtzman's office, suspicion breeds confidence. Mm. I, I'm, I'm incredibly confident without being suspicious. I'm going to get some of those posters for my office. I, yeah. they're, they're great because they're spoofs of real posters. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Like loose lips sing ships. You know? Yeah. Does anybody have any idea why it's called Brazil? Yeah. It's, uh, it's named after the song. Uh, the song is called Watercolors of Brazil. It's kind of become the official song of the country, Brazil. And I guess Terry Gilliam fell in love with it and decided to use it as the, the central musical piece to the movie. And then it was just being used so much that he named it Brazil. So it's named after that song. So thumbs up? Yeah, I love it. Brilliantly yeah. made film. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, likewise. Two thumbs and two big toes up. It's, yeah, I rewatched it for our research for this. I've seen it. This would be probably the third or fourth time I've seen it. I remember the first time I watched it in my teens, I didn't get it. 
I just was, I, my mind was not good enough at handling that kind of message. And I just went, that was a weird movie. I and did then I find saw it, it horrifying. Yeah. And then later I saw it and really got it and it really struck home. The part that, in, and this is only now, like, you know, after I've, 20 years after I've seen, or almost 20 years after I've seen it. But what strikes me now that struck me as utterly ridiculous in the day was, of course, his mother and all of her friends in their ridiculous plastic surgeries. Yeah. And he would My go over there. My complications had some complications. Yeah, and they, <laughs> they would have all these ridiculous surgeries. And now, in the 21st century, some of the stuff that they do in the movie doesn't seem nearly so ridiculous anymore. People are actually doing some of this stuff. Injecting their face with botulism, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Bovine good times. toxin, yeah, good times. It was, really? Somebody was in the crowd. The that was our joke. <laughs> Obviously, somebody with a with with Google and the phone just uh, threw out the working title is 1985. Thank you, Lisa. 1984 and a half, perhaps. Well, we can't move on to TV without me hearing Kevin rant about the island. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, directed by Michael Bay. Uh, what else? Uh, that, uh, outside of Roland Emmerich. I still haven't I, seen it. Did the island explode at the end? Uh, there, there was Everything yeah. exploded at the end. Oh, wow. <laughs> Shocking. It, uh, you know... Outside of Roland Emmerich, Michael Bay is my second leading nemesis. <laughs> the only reason he's not the top is because he introduced me to Megan Fox, so uh, I'll forgive him. I'll give him a little bit more leeway. But uh, he, he, he took a good concept, which was these clones were being made uh, for the, the benefit of the rich and, and, and privileged in society so that they could use them basically as an organ farm, right? Mm-hmm. As a living, breathing organ farm. But the clones themselves didn't know that this was their job. They just thought they were people yeah. uh, who lived incredibly short lives. And they were uh, living in this kind of, uh, yeah. you know, technologically advanced They lived in an world. underground bunker, that, uh, and they were told that the world outside was devastated by war and that there was only one safe place left, and it was the island. So when somebody would come and collect them to harvest their organs, they'd say, oh, they're getting, they won the lottery, and they're getting sent to the island. And, uh, and it, so it's got the trappings of a fantastic dystopian uh you know thriller right it could could have turned into this kind of detective thriller about them figuring out about the thing and then it turns into this action movie that completely undermines everything i just feel like michael bay took what was probably a half decent sci-fi script and baited up yeah i mean there's certainly there, there is a there was an outstanding court case with uh somebody who did a movie in 1979 called the clone is horror uh, claims that the script was basically his movie. Uh, I don't know what the resolution of that court case became, but uh, but yeah, I mean, suffice to say, like, there's a lot of like familiar tropes in this right. thing. But uh, interesting tidbit: the uh, the there's a big car chase sequence where the Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor, the clones, are on the back of a truck, and all sorts of things are falling off of this semi, and cars are crashing. And Michael Bay took that footage and reused it in the latest Transformers movie. Oh, that's right, I heard oh, about that. You nice. can uh, you can go on YouTube. Reduce, and see. reuse, recycle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so, right. He added in a Transformer wrecking the car that flips over. Right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. You so can you, see that on YouTube. You yeah, can see you, the before and after. They're, they're, it's, uh, they, they, some people have actually done these YouTube videos with split screens, so you can actually see frame by frame how much he stole from the island and transplanted into Transformers. I don't know if that's unethical, though. I know people made a big deal about it, but I'm like, 
We directed both movies. I mean, why the heck not? It right? sounds like it's more carbon neutral than refilming. Yeah. You've, you've sold me the same scene twice. I yeah. had to pay 11 bucks each. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there should be a discount. Yeah, yeah, you should get 50 cents back for that scene that was shot at another time, right? Although there should be more of a discount just for watching a Michael Bay movie. Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Or maybe you deserve what you get. It was just so weird for me because this, the first half, maybe more than a half, of, had one tone. Yeah, and then once they got out, it was like fruit cart chase scene. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Good. It was like it was an a hour. completely utterly schizophrenic. Oh, as a professional film editor, well, I, I I can make no claim. All I can think that they, as far as the script went, they probably just departed from the script in the right. second half. But uh, I too loved the beginning. Like I thought the part that was actually a sci-fi movie mm-hmm. was really interesting. Yeah, I wonder. Larry, did you even see the island? Yeah, I saw it. I'm sorry. Oh, you watch a lot of movies, man. I don't go to a lot of movies. I just happen to, to watch the ones you like. Okay. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think of the island? I liked it. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, didn't glitch, I didn't glitch when, they, when it all turned into, into action. Movies always do all turn into action. Right. And, and yeah, right. Uh, I can picture them being refugees. Hunted. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, there are people who are powerful who have a lot to gain from seeing to it that their clones don't go to the Los Angeles Times. Yeah, I guess my big problem with it was these, guys, these, these two clones who had lived in this idyllic society that had never done like a real day's work in their life and whatever get uh, out in the real world and they become James Bond, right? That they're flipping yeah, cars. But remember, and... they've been exercising. They've been exercising because you do. Yeah, I guess there's nothing else to do, right? They, they, they've stayed in perfect shape by lifting weights. True that, true that. Running. But he, he did at one point. They've, they've done a lot of running, I bet you, I bet you. Uh, on a track. Probably, you're probably right. He does fly, fly a flying motorcycle at one point. All right, though, I'm siding with Larry. All right, against that's you, silly. I, <laughs> <laughs> I fist pumped that one. I fist pumped. <laughs> I think if there's any movie that they should have split into two movies, like I was so upset that I had to pay for Kill Bill twice and <laughs> Matrix, the last two thirds of Matrix and all that kind of stuff. But there's any movie they should have split up into two separate movies. That would be the movie. Well, because it was too, it was long too. Like it, it was, was easily long. like two and a half, two hours and forty minutes long. Yeah, like it yeah. almost could have been two movies, and it should have been. I agree. Now right. I'm going to have to watch the first half. So are we all uh, one thumbs up? Uh, I'll give you a half a thumbs up on okay. that. One. Okay, okay, half a thumbs up. Oh, fair enough. A crooked thumb. Fair enough. I same. I give a thumbs up to the beginning. Okay. Right, right. So one brief TV uh, mention I want to make uh, is that Star Trek episode. Star Trek went to a dysfunctional society. <laughs> Shocking. Uh, a taste of Armageddon. This is classic Trek. Oh, yeah, I, I, I'm not a Trekkie, so you have to actually. Okay, I will. Define between two series, right? This is original series, correct? Yes. Classic meaning original, yeah. Oh, this okay. is the one with Spock. Oh, wow. I totally am getting dissed from the crowd right now. <laughs> Practically getting booed off the stage. Somebody here just threw a triple at you. Uh, a mini R7 is at war with Vendikar and has been for 500 years. The war is fought with computers. Casualties are calculated and the victims have 24 hours to report to disintegration stations so the deaths may be recorded. 
so this is the tidy solution uh, preserves the civilization despite the cost in lives. Right. All right. Uh, so if people don't report for disintegration, then Vendicar will be forced to launch real weapons and Aminiar would be forced to retaliate and both civilization and population would die. So, of course, Kirk and Spock get all embroiled in this whole, the whole war. Yeah. yeah. Somebody in a red shirt dies. Presumably. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so basically the uh, Spock and, and uh, Kirk uh, getting involved in this leads to the complete, you know, destruction of this system. And uh, the quote from Kirk is, death, oh, well, let me do the, uh, let me do the Kirk. Oh, yeah, okay. nice. Death, destruction, disease, horror. That's what war is all about, Anon. That's what makes it a thing to be avoided. <laughs> well done. So, Nicely done, sir. Nicely done. So, yeah, I think that's a really good uh, example of a dystopia, this yeah. kind of like futuristic society and war is all kind of uh, made clinical and sanitary. That's the great thing about science fiction television shows, especially ones like Star Trek that head around to different places because they can, let's visit a world where this is messed up. Let's visit a yeah. world where, uh, I, I remember now, Star Trek The Next Generation, I can't remember the name of the, of the episode, but they go to that perfect planet and yeah. everybody's all happy on it and then uh, Wesley Crusher falls onto some plants yeah. and, and is, has penalty. to die because every single thing has the death penalty. <laughs> and all the people on the planet are like, but you shouldn't have done that. It's against the law. Yeah. yeah. Let's go to Planet and Hump Green Ladies. <laughs> that was the... Uh... I wouldn't call that a dystopia. <laughs> Is if she gets preggers and you have a oh. uh, society of half Shatners. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> or half Shats for short. Mom, I want to go to the mall with my friends. <laughs> you hold me back. Well, let's talk about then how is modern society moving towards dystopia? How does that strike you guys? Oh, yeah. Now, practical application of everything we learned up to this point in time. Yeah. It's like college <laughs> all over again. So uh, social control systems, I would bring up Homeland Security and the Patriot Act. Yeah. I, w- I would bring up the loss of our space program. Yeah. We no that longer have access to orbit yeah. for, for men, for people. Well, unless I, I hear now we can, we can give the Russians like $35 million or something like that, and they'll, they'll pop somebody out into space for you. We hope. Yeah. How, how has their technology been doing in the last 30 years? They may be getting a little slop. Yeah. yeah. Well, a, well, with the $35 million like, rattling around in their pocket, maybe they can upgrade a little bit. If it goes to the right place. I might go to an oil baron or something like that. Think or of. a crime lord. Who oh, there's to be a, running there's their a, government? Yeah, there's a dystopia, like a uh, government that's, you know, very heavily influenced by criminal organizations. Yeah, the Patriot Act uh, and Homeland Security. I think, like, Homeland Security is all, already almost Orwellian doublespeak. Yeah. In yeah. a way. Uh, built right in. Uh, and do you guys know what the Patriot Act, actually, it's an acronym and it actually stands for something? I didn't uh, know no, that. No, I did not know that. USA Patriot. Uniting and strengthening America... Yes, America's again part of USA uh-huh. by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism. Act of two thousand and one. Wow! Oh, yeah. That would, that takes a lot of work to come up with that. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know that they hired. How is it work? 
They hired a, a they full hire Larry of Niven style wordsmith to <laughs> craft that one. I would imagine. Uh, the actor response to the terrorist acts of 9-11 dramatically reduced restrictions on law enforcement agencies' ability to search telephone, email, medical, financial, and other records and uh, eased restrictions on foreign intelligence gathering within the United States. Well, I remember when the story first came out, when the U.S. Patriot Act was being up, was up and the ACLU was arguing against it and stuff, was the, uh, the warrantless wiretapping. Mm-hmm. That, was like, that was the big bugaboo. That was the thing that everybody was talking about. That was the... the the most problematic contravention of people's civil liberties was that you no longer had to get anybody's permission to actually listen in on their phone. I, I, yeah. It's only at times like that that you start to think about, what have I said on the phone lately? Or the <laughs> next, I think the next step of it is they're just going to turn on your camera phone or turn on your camera on your laptop. Right. And maybe they can videotape you at any time. Right. Maybe your Xbox Connect is watching you. <laughs> yeah. Lisa's freaking me out. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. I was just thinking about how we all have cameras on yeah. our person yeah. 24 hours a day. Now. Yeah, but the one in my Blackberry is really terrible. So, uh, <laughs> is that Kevin? Yeah, you, you had no idea. So Nobody wants to look at that. There been anyway. some, <laughs> there's been some numbers coming out just recently about uh, what the Patriot Act has been used for. Uh, and as you, as you said in the, the acronym there, it's, it was created to fight terrorism, right? It's actually in the it's acronym. In the, in the name. Right, yeah. The Patriot Act has been used uh, for drugs 1,618 times. Like, f- like what do you mean by drugs? Like to acquire to, to drugs? Ca- no, to... <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, what do uh, you mean? To, pretty, to, to catch people phrase. for uh, selling illegal drugs. So they've invoked the Patriot Act in order to spy on them to get the evidence to convict them of, of uh, selling drugs. Well, that's how, does that, how does that rate on the terrorometer? Uh, yeah. Well, it depends on who you listen to. <laughs> you know, of course, all that drug money goes to terrorists eventually, according to the government. It's been used for fraud 122 times and for terrorism 15 times. Mm, uh, I like those odds. 15 times. Maybe and the frauds they were looking into were people claiming they weren't terrorists. They were pulling back the veil on that it's one. Possible. And we've spoken on the podcast plenty of times about Guantanamo Bay and you know this this uh, you know holding people in captivity with no sentence and no trial and no you know uh, regard for the fact that you know if that some of the people in there are even possibly innocent. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, you know might and not still ever not be released. Let them go yeah. Because now they're going to be terrorists. They and were I, innocent. Yeah, now I, that you've tortured them and kept them with terrorists. And it's honestly, it's been one of the things that has always bugged me more than just about anything is that because you just, I always, when I, whenever I think of people's civil liberties being, um, being lifted or being, um, you know, circumnavigated in any way, shape, or form, I always try and put myself in the shoes of that other person. What if that happened to me? Mm-hmm. How would I feel about that? And I got to say, being imprisoned. Uh, you know, uh, ad infinitum with uh, no trial or any sort of like end of sentence at all possible down the road, even if I were guilty, that would probably be the worst thing that you could possibly do to me. Yeah. And that's the worst situation that I would want to be in. Right. So I, I, like, I just, I, it's indefensible. Because you love to run naked through fields of flowers. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's your number one pastime. Terrorism right there. <laughs> Making people look well, at me. Well, if terrorism. you're naked in public, it's pretty, pretty yeah. much terrorism. It's, it's, well, it terrorizes people. That's a 10 people. on the terrorometer It terrorizes right there. people, so that, that's terrorism by definition, right? 
but also in uh, to bring it up to Canada, uh, there's been a lot of talk about uh, what Harper has been trying to do to the internet and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've got a bill that the, he wants to pass right now that allows them to do warrantless spying on the internet on Canadian citizens. What, so they can look at my browser history? Yeah, or just watch every single thing you're doing. They can intercept what you're downloading and see it. All right, I Without gotta, a warrant. I got I to go clear my browser history. <laughs> And we talked briefly about uh, about surveillance as well. This is probably more of an issue again as in Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, and class disparity and segregation is that is that something that's happening? I would say yes. Yeah, in, income especially in terms of yeah income class. Bit. Yeah, less the alpha and delta and epsilons from like Brave New World, well, and you're more about the, the poor people and the rich people. We're seeing the Occupy Wall Street people uh, in America right now. Right. Uh, not much on American news, but it's certainly happening. You can find out about it on the internet, uh, and it's basically a bunch of people who are sick and tired of the rich in America getting all the breaks and the rest of America getting screwed over because of it. So they're now down there just protesting. Uh, And there's some examples of some police brutality down there, and thankfully that's hit the internet. And now apparently, uh, last I heard, about 100 police officers have refused to go on duty to contain them. Uh, There are a couple of uh, labor unions that have joined them in their occupation of Wall Street. So it's starting to really snowball. Uh, We might actually see something come out of this instead of just a bunch of hippie stoners protesting (laughs) rich people. (laughs) Well, Uh, Because let's face it, that's what it was. Nobody was taking them seriously until they got pepper sprayed. Well, Larry, you're kind of a world-class futurist. What do you think is coming uh, down the pipe? What uh, what do we have in store for us in the near and distant future? When I was talking about abuse of law, I was really thinking of the EPA. Uh, I I support uh, some legal gatherings who do free legal work uh, to support people whose property has been yanked away by claiming, claiming your house is a wetland. Oh. oh, okay. That's uh, one of those things you don't even realize is an issue. There's been a lot of that. So uh, people are getting their houses uh, confused because yeah, their property their property confiscated. Yeah, is being deemed a wetland, uh, like for preservation purposes, kind of thing. Guy, a guy being charged with uh, with destroying a wetland because he's he's moving abandoned uh, tires off part of his property. Oh wow, Tired. huh? That kind that kind of stuff. Then they take him away, and a year later, there's ducks all over the place in his house. <laughs> Just a house full of ducks. Oh, the duck amity. <laughs> <laughs> Who's with me? <laughs> yeah. I don't see how that's good. I'd rather see the tires. Well, what about from a... Nobody like has a, a duck swing. <laughs> <laughs> you have tire swings. TM. <laughs> what, about, uh, what about from a, like a, a, a bigger picture perspective there, Larry? Do you... Th- what do you think? Uh, how, how do you think we're going to proceed? What are, You're what are you right. That our... was little. As, as a general thing, though, government grows, and it's growing faster than ever mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, I know of places that have reversed that kind of trend. One of them is New Zealand. One of them is Canada. Uh, we could reverse the trend if if Obama can be can be got rid of, but. I'm getting into politics. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, supercomputers? Will we have uh, supercomputers running our lives? I feel as though oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't really have a smartphone, uh-huh. but I definitely see the trend where people are paying more attention to their smartphones. Than I fear my than phone people. is smarter than I am. <laughs> uh, I don't really know everything about how to use it. 
and I don't have an iPad. Uh, I haven't gone as far as I could have uh, with with machines because I flinched from learning how to use them. Uh, sure. So there will be a second-class citizen group, and, yeah. and I fear I will be one of them. And we are the ones who don't know how to use the machines. You can't Twitter. They will be the referred to yeah. the twit knots. They, yeah, they will I be referred to as the Nivens. <laughs> the Nivens. Well, man, you could call me Niven proudly, like, <laughs> but I, yeah, I. The internet is an extension of my brain. That's how much I use this stuff. That's the yeah. reason I'm the one with the laptop. Well, it's getting to the point where if you go in to get a new phone, like you can't even get just a cell phone anymore. It's pretty yeah. much like, it's difficult. Like they pretty much steer you towards smartphones. Right. So it's become so ubiquitous, and they're you know they're charging the same price as a to have just a phone as right. a smartphone. So I'm not too worried about, uh, say, a, an AI taking us over. I think there's way too much or the satellites taking of pictures that. of your uh, of the inside of your pocket. I that <laughs> might happen. That's the kind of thing I might worry about. But uh, I think also there are a lot of people who are very worried about that on the internet. We've got the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. And they are constantly on the watch for these kinds of abuses. And when people find out things like this are happening, people get upset and you start sharing it again on the Internet, right? right. It's not only become a place to, for people to get in and, and spy on your life, but it's also become a place to organize and reach other people and spread that news around. Uh, like we were talking about with the Occupy Wall Street, the vast majority of mainstream media did not cover this. Instead, they covered people getting angry about the new Facebook layout. <laughs> but people on Facebook found out about it, started spreading YouTube videos, showing the, the cop pepper spraying everybody. Uh, thankfully, The Daily Show helped out and did a big thing on it. And now it's everywhere. Everybody knows about it, even though the big mainstream media didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to spread this message. So I think even though we do have to worry about a lot of uh, interference with our life from this technology, at the same time, it can also be the thing that's going to free us from that. Well, I mean, you've got a really great example of fighting uh, sort of oppressive government uh, control with using technology with the, the Arab Spring, right? Last year yeah. with all the, the social media-driven uprisings all throughout the, the Arab world. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's a perfect example of it right there that, you know, haven't lost hope in humanity yet, Joe. Yeah, to me, the internet is a big thing with the internet is just communication, to, to be able to reach people of a like mind. And when you enable that kind of communication, as long as the people know how to communicate properly. Yeah, like usually it's just you to ask somebody to get naked, but, you know, it can be used for more edifying purposes than that. Both right. of those topics are think- making me a little misty. <laughs> I've been thinking for years that privacy might have been a passing fad. It, yeah. It lasted several centuries, but not that many centuries. It was. It, it, it was not possible for kings to have privacy or peasants either in the Middle Ages. Right. Yeah. Or, but now we're kind of giving it up voluntarily, era. right? A king gave away his privacy uh, to, to get guards to and, avoid assassination. And now we've got Tom Cruise, who uh, implicitly gives away his privacy, right? All actors have given up privacy. Right. All yeah, politicians so. have given up some privacy. Well, all the handsome ones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's, it's only mid, middle private citizens who have anything like privacy. Right. Yeah. And, and only because we are un, uninteresting. And with everybody with a camera in their pocket, that's changing. Yeah. Um, one of the things is, you know how the, an embarrassing photograph of a politician will pop up. In 20 years, who's not going to have an embarrassing photo of them somewhere? Yeah. So either we're going to elect the whitest of the white bread, no, nothing interesting about them at all people, in order to have people without some kind of scandal, 
or we're just going to get over it and realize that everybody flashes their butt drunkenly at a party sometime, and that doesn't mean that you can't Some run a country. Some more than others, admittedly. And Some nobody looks good <laughs> while than others. sneezing. If those are on my computer, they can get out? <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta go. I gotta go race some hard time. <laughs> what about you, Lisa? What do you see in the in the future? You're uh, sitting next to Larry Niven. Are you getting a uh, futurist by uh, osmosis? <laughs> I wish. Lives don't go that way. <laughs> I wish I could absorb it. Can you give me a little? Well, I, I'm a cynic, so I always believe, like you know, that that as much as communication will maybe protect us. I have a feeling we may not know what's happening. Like they, we could be right now that you know that right. we could, our privacy could be absolutely yeah. gone, and everything yeah. on your computer right now is public knowledge. We don't know. So, so. Less, less Big Brother or more like Big Brother? <laughs> yeah. I I am scared of Big Brother. I am. So. And that's one of the things about about modern society is everyone's job is a very specialist job. Like if you took any of us out on a farm to live off the land, we would not do so well. Uh-huh. So people have all these devices, and they don't really know how they work. They don't know how the Internet works. They don't know how you yeah, know, surveillance works. You know what works. happens when you lose your Internet co- co- connection? You're, you're totally useless. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like you have no answers yeah. of any kind. You can't do anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah any, uh, I guess we have a microphone over there on the uh, right-hand side of the room for uh, anybody who wants to step up and oh, we throw go. it a... Uh, Oh, we've got an eager participant. So, okay, feeding on something you guys just said. Um, I've heard recently for the first time about a concept that I'd never heard before, the concept of extelligence, right? Extelligence. Extelligence, where intelligence is the knowledge that you know, that you carry around uh, in your head. And extelligence being um, the method your society has to keep a pool of information that you can access whenever you need. So Google. Right. So first we had oral traditions, then we had books, then we had Google. Um, so, but with each of these steps, as intelligence becomes more and more all-encompassing, the need to carry this stuff around in our head gets less and less. Yeah. And when we get cut off from it, we get completely lost. Right. We don't have any of that in our head anymore because we're used to going outside. So if that trend continues forward, I'm curious um, what you guys see coming of that. Is there a next step to that where we have even less in our head, and what would that be, and right, what does that do to us? I point out that I think everybody in our audience is smarter than the three of us <laughs> who are the hosts of the podcast, which is very intimidating. Sure. But, uh, Larry, do you have an opinion on intelligence? Yeah. We eventually reached the point where uh, the devices we use uh, to, to think for us uh, are, ready, are ready for civil rights. Mm. Yeah. And, and civil rights isn't going to happen for computers. It, it's, the, it's the program that's uh, intelligent, after all. Uh, the, the computer is just hardware. And the uh, program can be duplicated, can be shared, can be split up. Uh, you never know how many entities there are in a computer system. Uh, it keeps changing all the time. How are they going to vote? Yeah. We hit that point, and things become very flaky. <laughs> So I, uh, when push comes to shove, do we become the Matrix or the Terminator? Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Both are dystopias. We, we may be able to work our way around that. I, I, I could foresee a future in which uh, all the intelligence you want is available. The question reminds me of a, a short story, the title and even author of which uh, completely escapes me, but it's stuck in my head. Uh, and it's about a world where... 
everybody has a calculator. Of course, this was written quite a while ago, so yes. before little tiny computers. But uh, everybody would have a computer with them that could do all the math that they needed to do. And it had reached a point where nobody bothered to learn math, and it had, reached, it had gone even farther past that, that nobody even knew how math worked. And I guess this guy didn't envision Wikipedia, so he couldn't just look up the arithmetic page. Um, <laughs> so math had become a forgotten uh, skill because the computers all built computers. Humans didn't need to know it at all. And one guy discovers math from the ground up. He just starts thinking about it and figuring out basic addition and can start can do it in his head and then can do multiplication. He figures out the times tables. And he, the government finds out about this and is amazed at this new knowledge that this guy has <laughs> because they envision using human-targeted missiles, doing all the calculations sitting in the missile, flying to the target, because it would be cheaper than their computers. So he also didn't envision Moore's Law making them better and cheaper. Um, but that, yes. that was an Isaac Asimov story. Was it? Yeah. You, you told it very well. Oh, thank you. Feeling of Power was the title, yeah. Wow. Oh, nice. Amazing. Do we want to talk about comics or games? Joe? Briefly, yeah. I'll talk about Judge Dredd. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, briefly. Uh, Judge Dredd uh, is a British comic. And it's set in a uh, very dystopian future. Um, and this is one of those totalitarian police state kind of futures where uh, Judge Dredd is one of these, uh, not, just, uh, not just a policeman, but also a judge and, a, and the jury and, if necessary, an on-the-spot executioner. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, he's, he, you know, this is the kind of society where, you know, doing bad... You don't get a fair trial. You don't get, uh, you know, lawyers yeah. or anything like well, that. Well, because there's so much criminal activity that the the court system just has no capacity to handle it. So that's why they made judges put them out on the streets with guns. And, uh, you know, whatever yeah. judgment they would provide in their courtroom, they'll just provide on the street instead. Mm-hmm. And it, it was written very tongue-in-cheek. Like, it is, uh, uh, it feels very spoofy. In, uh, in its sure, sort of original yeah. co- in- incarnation, anyway. Judges with guns. Less robes, more guns. <laughs> yeah, and that cool helmet. Yeah, and the cool helmet, uh, John Wagner, the writer, explained, um, you know, Dredd's entire face is never shown properly in the strip. Uh, the custom soon became a rule which artists were required to follow. His quote is, it sums up the facelessness of justice. Justice has no soul, so it isn't necessary for readers to see Dredd's face, and I don't want you to. They're actually reshooting. They're shooting a Judge Dredd movie right now, starring a guy named Carl Urban, and uh, he uh, uh, he played the bad guy in Red, and he's an, uh, he was in Pathfinder. He's a really good German actor, and he's sort of on the rise. Like people kind of see him as so. When he actually requested the role, and the producers pulled him aside and said, "You know, you're never going to take the mask off, right? Like nobody will actually see your face <laughs> in this movie." He's like, "That's why I want to do it." Oh, nice. So, uh, so yeah, Carl Urban is the next Judge Dredd. Did anyone see the the movie? Uh, the Sylvester Stallone <laughs> Abomination. I didn't actually see it. And, yeah, and no. Did it have uh, who's that terrible comedian? Uh, Rob Schneider. Rob Schneider as the sidekick. Oh, nice. Yeah. Always a good time. How about you guys? Anybody over there see uh, Lisa? No. Larry? I, I saw the movie. Yeah. Oh, oh my goodness! You're what a real you cinephile. I enjoyed it without taking it very seriously. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. In the spirit to which it was intended, I'm yeah, sure. Well, to which it wasn't intended. I think it was unintentional. <laughs> it was supposed to be the next Citizen Kane. I wouldn't yeah. give it a full thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Catch yeah. it on the late night. 
go ahead and see it. All right, okay. <laughs> so half a, a, half I think that was more like a quarter the of a crooked thumb, thumb. Right there. That was a fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, there are certainly movies that are like that for me. The crooked thumb of Larry I, Niven. The first Transformers movie was terrible, but I love it anyway. Yeah. Like I, the second and third though, I just. Uh, yeah. I love another terrible Sylvester Stallone movie. Um, Oh, what's it called? Demolition Man. Demolition oh, yeah. Man. That, yeah. And that's a good dystopia. Right? Yeah, it's a Fair. good. It's a excellent. For Sandra Bullock. Yeah, she's wearing those tight pants. I thought it was a great. I thought it was great. A <laughs> blonde Wesley Snipes. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Only Dennis in a dystopia Leary. could he have blonde hair. No, much like Jude Law and Gattaca, I was. Uh, that's the first movie I ever saw Sandra Bullock in. Yeah. And thought, who's yeah. that cutie patootie? Yeah, she's great. And kept her in my in the in the. Oh, I'm gonna go filthy. Yeah. Don't. <laughs> Okay. I kept her in the spank bank ever since. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite comic book dystopia has to be Mark Millar's Wanted. Now, has anybody seen the Wanted movie that was made? It was, I, I actually thought it was quite good. That's the one with the turning bullets? With the, the curving bullets. The curving yeah. bullets. Yeah. With uh, James um, McAvoy and, uh, and... The thing is, the comic of it that was made in 2003, so quite a bit before was so much better. Uh, what it is, is it's basically set in a world where the comic book supervillains... In a world in where a world. comic book supervillains... <laughs> decided they'd had enough of getting beaten. Decided they'd had enough of getting beaten. <laughs> so they ganged together and killed all the heroes and took over the world. Oh. That's dystopian. That's pretty dystopian. <laughs> yeah. Now, then they used their super science and super magic to make everybody forget that there ever were superheroes mm. and they all secretly run parts of the world oh, that this seemed is way better than it's the way movie. better it's a totally different story it's yeah. a totally different story well what they did was they said well we can't have them be villains let's make them assassins that are doing it for good reasons but in the comic he is the son of one of these villains that's taken over who has just died similar to the way it happens in the movie uh, but he now inherits I think North America <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and that's his domain. And so yeah. he has to learn how to be a villain. <laughs> he yes, he's George W. Bush, the, well, the heir to America. See, and it is so off the hook. It is so super violent and unapologetically evil that you can't help but enjoy it anyway because you're seeing it from his point of view, right? So this is a dystopia for everybody else, but for him, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, Mark Miller is also the same writer who created uh, who created Kick-Ass, Kick Ass, which yeah. is one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years. Another so he has a dark turn. Yeah, he has a slightly dark bend. If I you will. absolutely recommend the comic of Wanted. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, much much better than the movie, and I like the movie anyway, even yeah. though it was different. Yeah, the movie was entertaining. I mean, yeah, there were some shortcuts that were taken that were obviously kind of yeah, you know, just trying to squeeze it into an hour and a half time frame. It's but a magic loom that tells them what to do. Yeah, yeah, but, that's not. But <laughs> that comic sounds excellent. It's me. They should make a movie adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> that title was flaunted. Wanted. Wanted. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, now we need to do a graphic novel. Wanted. <laughs> Larry, Larry Nivens <laughs> flaunted. <laughs> Be about you and your spank bank. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what Larry takes home from this, then I am fine with that. <laughs> I hope he doesn't take home your spank bank. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like it's got some good My stuff hands in there. Are clear and empty. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joe, uh, let's round this out with uh, talking about paranoia, the role playing game. Love it. 
Paranoia is a role-playing game, so similar to Dungeons & Dragons. I'm sure everybody here has played different types of role-playing games. Set in a post-Holocaust dystopia uh, where everybody has moved underground, living in this huge underground city called Alpha Complex. It's controlled by the computer. Controlled by their friend computer, or the computer. Uh, People have different levels of security clearance going from uh, infrared, then up through the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, up to ultraviolet. They have to wear the color of their security clearance, uh, infrared being the lowest, red being the next highest. They also have to obey any commands of anybody above them. Uh, And typically the people playing the game are troubleshooters for the computer, which means that their job is to find trouble and shoot it. Trouble is, is defined as treason, and treason for the computer is uh, anybody who's a member of a se- secret society. All ev- players every, are members of secret societies. Uh, anybody who has a mutant power. All players have mutant powers. Mm-hmm. And anybody who disobeys the computer, and you pretty much all eventually disobey the computer. Uh, and the punishment for treason is always death. So your job is to go out and find traitors, but you're a traitor, and so is everybody else in the party. And then you're supposed to shoot them. Usually in the games that I've played, we just end up shooting each other and shouting, shouting, traitor, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> yeah. Once, once you get to that, you, you get your mission handed out to you and they, somebody has to become the leader. Then there becomes a fight over who becomes the leader. And then all of a sudden who started the fight is now a traitor because the computer should... And then there's <laughs> a couple of casualties. Thankfully in the game, every single player has a bunch of clones. And as soon as you die, a clone of you shows up to take your place and continue. Yeah, you get six game. clones. You get six of them, yeah. It's, it's wickedly good fun, total dark comedy. You are constantly watching your back from the other players, which is very different from most role-playing games. And it's not the kind of game that you could really have a campaign, no. like a Dungeons & Dragons you know, year-long campaign. We've had people run out of clones. It's yeah. a great uh, convention, kind of two-hour, one-off kind of a Wonderful game. Wonderful one-shot yeah. uh, role-playing game, yeah. You guys, uh, any of our, either of our guests play RPGs? You guys have any, uh... Who, what's your, who's your Dungeons & Dragons character? I don't play much. I've played a few times in my life. But mostly, mostly I write novels about it. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Dream Park, love it. Good. Dream Park. Participated in founding the, uh, the... The The LARPing. the, The LARP. Yeah. I, well, man, I read Dream Park when I was quite young and just filled my head full of, this is what we're going to do when we play role-playing games in the future. <laughs> the, the terms, the term International Fantasy Gaming Society, uh, the people who founded the LARPs in, in, uh, in Colorado Springs borrowed it from us nice. with, with permission. Lisa, did you bring your 20-sided die? <laughs> I what? do have 20-sided die, but I, I haven't had time to play uh, any longer you know, format games since college. But I do enjoy the board game RPG sure. that, that we have now and like, you know, um, the cooperative games you can play. And you can, mm-hmm. you can kind of play an RPG in a few hours, and, right. I mean, which it sounds like paranoia is like. Yeah, yes. it's great for that. All right, nerds, one and all. All nerds. Excellent. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Well, I think that wraps it up. Uh, I guess I should officially thank Larry Niven and uh, yes, Lisa thank you Lassie so much. Do you guys uh, what projects do you have uh, going that you might want to let our listeners know about right now? Anything? Well, watch for a fourth uh, uh, Dream Park novel called nice. The Moon Maze Game. Nice. Yes, with Stephen Barnes, of course. And Stephen has played more role-playing games than I have by a little. Lisa? Uh, I have uh, Cabin in the Woods coming out April 13th. What's that? Is it year. about a cabin in the woods? Or? It's a horror comedy. And right. then a very small movie called The Avengers coming out in May. So. 
I think I've heard <laughs> of that one. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, thanks to both of you. Um, for the rest of you, visit us at CausticSodaPodcast.com for more episodes on topics such as space warfare, near-Earth objects, and black holes. Uh, thanks to Kerberos Productions for their support. And thank you to VCon. Yeah. This was your weekly dose of Caustic Soda. Yeah.